0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, A Desert Experience, with a message titled, No Nation Like Israel. So turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 to 8, as we join Dr. Newfeld now.
1: It's difficult to get an accurate picture of what is Israel? I suppose I might begin by saying that Israel is unlike any other people group on earth. And that in itself is saying a great deal. That is of all the nations and people and ethnicities of the earth and whatever divisions there might be, there are no people like Israel. And the most obvious reason for saying that is that no other nation was ever called God's chosen people. Now, it takes some work to define that term, and for one, it certainly doesn't mean that all Israel were saved. You know, read the prophet Isaiah and see that only a remnant were saved in his day. Or read the prophet Ezekiel as he describes Israel as a rebellious house. Or read 1 Kings 19 and hear the complaint of the prophet Elijah when he says, Israel has forsaken your covenant. They've thrown down your altars. They've killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, alone am left. Well, in the case of Elijah, it wasn't quite as bad as the prophet had imagined. Elijah was not the only one left. Indeed, there were 7,000 in Israel who remained faithful, but Elijah was right that the situation was bad. Now, in spite of all that, Israel is still the chosen people of God. And so we are right to ask the question, chosen for what? And I'm not going to answer all of that today, but we can say that they were chosen for a very special mission. Every time I go to Israel today, I tell those who come with me that were it not for Israel, we'd have no Bible, we'd have no promises from God, no Savior, no hope for the world. And for that reason, I tell people that they owe to Israel an infinite debt of gratitude, both to God and to them as well. Israel is unique. I know that throughout history, various nations have claimed the status chosen people believing that the birth of their nation is similar to the birth of Israel, but that is fundamentally untrue. God makes it very plain that what he has done for Israel, he has done for no other nation on earth. We have in our study of Exodus come to chapter 19, in which we're going to see that Israel now comes to the base of Mount Sinai. Had they been faithful, they would have, after a year in front of that mountain, moved directly from that and inherited the promised land. But as you probably know, Israel's rebellion made that impossible. But that's not our story today. Our story is their arrival at Sinai and God announcing to them what he has in mind for the nation. So we read Exodus 19, verse 1 and 2. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai and encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain. Israel, as we see, functions according to the lunar calendar. It's now the third new moon since the Exodus, and so we can safely say that it's been over two months since they left, and it might well be approaching on three months." And if you're keeping track, the rest of the events of Exodus are going to take place right in this location. And all the book of Leviticus happens there as well. Israel doesn't move from Mount Sinai until we come to Numbers 10, 11 to 12. And there we read, in the second year, in the second month, on the 20th day of the month, the cloud lifted from over the tabernacle of the testimony and the people of Israel set out by stages from the wilderness of Sinai. And so we can see that the people arrive in the third month after leaving Egypt. And they remain until the second month a year later. They will, in this place, in front of Sinai, learn a large portion of the law of God. They're going to build a tabernacle there. They're going to establish a ritual of sacrifice and the rules whereby God can be approached. It's at Sinai that Israel will learn her religion. And so this is an important moment. Indeed, for the rest of the Bible, the matter of what happened at Sinai is constantly replayed. What happened here is referred to as the Sinaitic Covenant. I mean, think of your Bible in terms of a number of covenants or binding agreements that God makes with his people. We might think of the covenant with Noah, in which God binds himself to an agreement that he has made. He'll never destroy the earth by a flood again. He'll bring about conditions in which a universal flood will never be necessary again. Then we move to the next covenant, the covenant that God makes with Abraham. There God promises to make Abraham into a great nation and through him to bless the whole earth. Now we come to the covenant at Sinai. Here God makes an agreement that Israel will be his holy nation, his treasured possession. So let's read Exodus 6, 1-6. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. In a very real way, these words are a preamble to everything that's going to happen while Israel's at Sinai. We notice the first thing that happens is that Israel camps there. I have no reason for believing there's any water here, but as we've seen, they're here for a year, and it might be that God performs a miracle as he's done at Rephidim. We simply don't know. Maybe they would go back to Rephidim. Maybe it wasn't that far away. At any case, they have enough water and enough manna, and that, if they're obedient, would have been the story. From Sinai, they would have gone to the promised land, but this generation would break the covenant with God. Again, that's for later. This is now when God makes the covenant. God calls Moses up the mountain. Now, we remember that the first time Moses was at this mountain, that was when he had seen the burning bush. And there God had called him to go to Egypt and set his people free. Now Moses is back, and the people are free. Moses has done what God has called him to do. And one wonders about the flood of emotions that he must have felt now that he was here. And so at the command of God, Moses ascends the mountain. We're not told, at least on this occasion, how God spoke to Moses. It may well have been that only Moses heard an audible voice, but at any rate, the instructions are plain. The first instruction was to review with Israel what God had done. Remind them, says God, what I did to the Egyptians. It's important especially as was true of Israel, they were constantly forgetting, or they were giving credit to other gods. But they were also to remember that God bore them on eagles' wings. Now, of course, that's a metaphor. That's a creative image. To be born on eagles' wings, that means that they had received safe passage. Were it not for the wings of the eagle that carried them, they would never have arrived to this place. And furthermore, it was the eagle that brought them. They didn't choose this place. They were led here. They, all two million, had come to this mountain, for this was the mountain of God. That nation had an appointment with God. Now, they might have remembered at this point in time how Moses had told Pharaoh, let my people go so that they might worship me. Indeed, Moses had put it more forcefully. He had said, thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go. See, God demanded that Pharaoh let the people go to come to this very mountain. Even Pharaoh himself, you know, the most powerful man in the region, was unable to keep these people from their divine appointment. And what follows next sets the stage or sets the table of the banquet as to what is to follow. So let's notice four important points that had to be impressed on Israel at the very start of the time in front of this mountain. First from verse 4, we notice that God demands obedience. He says they are to obey his voice. That is, when Moses gives commands to the people, those commands are the same as the voice of God speaking to them directly. So think about that. It doesn't matter if God thunders from Mount Sinai as he would later do and say, you shall have no other gods before me. God might speak words audibly, or as would come about, Moses would write those words down and record them in a book, and in consequence, future generations like us would read those very words. But whether spoken or written down and read, those words, those words are the voice of God. That's why modern day believers are assured that when they read the pages of scripture, they are reading the very words of God. God is speaking. This is the voice of God. Now then says God, if you obey my voice, you will be my treasured possession. That is, they're not only called upon to hear the voice of God, they're called upon to obey it, obedience to God. It's essential to the kind of people that God desired them to be.
0: Last month, our friends at In Doubt launched the In Doubt show with host Andrew Marcus, and it hit the ground running. The show kicked off with Back to the Bible Canada's Dr. John Newfeld, and included a segment called Dangerous Doctrines, where Dr. John and Andrew confront and unpack, unravel, shed light on some of the crooked theological thinking out there today. The In Doubt show also recently featured a conversation with a co-creator, of one of the most popular current Christian dramatic series, The Chosen. Just a few of the great selection of guests so far and many more to come. So stay tuned for new engaging conversations with Christian experts and leaders ready to speak into the relevant issues of life, faith and culture young adults are facing today. The In Doubt Show, online at indoubt.ca or at the InDoubt YouTube channel, And be sure to subscribe so never to miss a new episode.
1: So we've noticed that God calls for obedience, but in the same breath, He also calls Israel to keep the covenant. That is, they are to remain within the binding agreement that God has made with them and will make with them before this mountain. That agreement will include the Ten Commandments. Now, very good. We can see that that there is a condition attached to the covenant. They must remain obedient to remain within the covenant. So let's stop here for a moment and consider, I think it's the most obvious of all questions. Israel, as we know, didn't remain faithful. They were frequently rebelling. Are we then to think that since God said, if you obey my voice, then you shall be my chosen possession, that since they didn't obey his voice, that they no longer are his chosen possession? Well, the answer is that the covenant remained in effect for the nation as a whole. However, and this is a big however, each individual generation needed to take hold of the covenant and make it their own. Consider what was going to happen to the generation that witnessed the deliverance from Egypt and also witnessed the covenant at Sinai. What happened to them? Well, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years until that entire generation died in the wilderness. Then their children inherited the promise. That means that God's covenant with the nation stands, although each generation must claim it or it won't be theirs. Well, very good. The first thing that we've noticed is that the covenant involves an expectation of obedience. The next thing we notice is that the covenant involves a marvelous promise. Among all the peoples of the earth, Israel alone is the treasured inheritance of God. No nation on earth will be as precious in the sight of God as Israel. Do you remember what God said to Pharaoh? You know, It was back in Exodus 4 verse 22. He said, Israel is my firstborn son. Do you remember what Paul taught us in the New Testament? He said the gospel is for the Jew first, but also for the Gentile. That is to say, God has not neglected the nations as a whole. In the fullness of time, God did send his son to save not only Israel, but people from every nation on earth. God never neglected the nations, but he placed Israel at the very center of his dealings with the earth. Israel would occupy center ground. I need to add an important feature here when christ came and brought forth the church he made it very clear there is no distinction between jew and gentile all are one in christ but but please know that the church is different from historic israel israel was never a nation of people in which all are saved on the other hand the global church the true people of god they are god's chosen people All of them, all of them are saved. That's the great difference. The point in Exodus 19 is that God is promising Israel that he is going to use them to play a particular role. Go to Deuteronomy 14, verse 2. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. See, Israel alone is chosen. As that nation will bring the gospel to the whole world. And that's the treasured possession status. God placed them at the center of the nations. It's the nation that will not only produce the Messiah, the Savior of the world, but it's also the nation that will produce a Bible, the Word of God. It's the nation from which the Messiah will come to bring men and women to Christ. So very good. That's the role of Israel. They have a command. They are to obey. Second, they are to understand that they have a uniquely chosen status. Now, third, also from verse 5, notice, they are the treasured possession of God. And then comes the line, although the earth is mine. That is to say, that Israel was never to think of their God as a tribal deity. No, no, the God who has chosen Israel is the God who has not only created all things, but the God who owns all things, the God who rules over all things. See, the end of verse 5 is intended to teach Israel to be monotheists, not polytheists. And that lesson, that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, took Israel generations to learn. I mean, over and over again, they reverted back to the false teaching that the gods of the nations also had their realm or sphere of sovereignty. And that's why when powerful nations threatened Israel in the future, The temptation was always, you know, to worship the gods of those powerful nations rather than to repent of their sins before Yahweh and cry out to him for mercy. And so God repeats it over and over again. For instance, Psalm 96 verse 5, For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Or you might think of Isaiah 43 verse 10 and 11. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me. And understand that I am he. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord. And besides me, there is no Savior. So please don't think, you know, that Israel alone had this problem. You've got the same problem, my dear listener. I mean, you think of the times when you've encountered problems in your life, and rather than confessing that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, you have another thought. You think the earth belongs to your enemies and the things that threaten you. Oh, oh, you of little faith. Oh, you of poor theology. Now, we've noticed three things. First, God demands obedience. Second, God chooses Israel as his treasured possession. Third, that God owns the whole earth and is not limited in any way. Now, fourth, Israel gets a mission from God. You see, they don't just revel in the truth that they're the chosen nation. No, no. The chosen nation has a purpose for its existence. God has a goal in mind when he chose Israel. Indeed, notice how clearly that intention is spelled out. Look at verse 6. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now, you should know that Peter quotes that verse in 1 Peter 2, verse 12, and he applies that to the mission of the church. Now I'm going to come back to that, but for now let's notice what that verse implies. Look, it's true that Aaron would serve as the high priest for the nation. It's also true that the tribe of Levi was the priestly tribe. Their task would have been to safeguard the tabernacle as well as take care of the daily sacrificial ritual. Well, let's step back for a moment and see if we can explain the nature of the First Testament priesthood. You know, essentially a priest was to approach God on behalf of the people. He was to bring sacrifices and offerings, he was to testify to the sins of the chosen people, and he was to appeal to God for mercy. The entire role of the priest was so that the community might know the reality of sins forgiven and have a provision of accessing mercy. Now, when God tells Moses the entire nation is to serve as a kingdom of priests, look, he's not announcing that everyone is going to perform the duties of the tribe of Levi. Instead, God is announcing that the nation of Israel has a role to play in the presence of all the nations. Go back to Genesis 12:3. It's part of the covenant God made with Abraham. You know, there God promised that he would bless the entire world through Abraham. So taking off from that promise, it seems to me that by calling Israel a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, God's announcing that Israel's national life, her adherence to the law, and her adherence to her God, that would open a doorway for the nations to learn about God. They were a kingdom of priests in that they were to come to God on behalf of the nations who did not know him. You know, go forward to the time of Solomon. You know, in his day, the, the tabernacle was replaced by the temple. Solomon built a temple. Now, when Solomon is dedicating the temple, hear these words. Solomon prays, 1 Kings eight forty one 41 to 43. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people, Israel, comes from a far country for your name's sake... For they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hand and of your outstretched arm. And when he comes and prays toward this house, hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your people Israel, and that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. That's the calling of Israel. It's a part of the covenant at Mount Sinai. And of course, as we know. Israel had a problem with that. Instead of blessing the nations, they ended up cursing the nations. They failed in the Sinaitic covenant. So that's why in Jesus' day, he would overthrow the tables of the money changers. For those tables were set up in the court of Gentiles, and Gentiles had no access to God. See, here's the prologue to the covenant. Israel is called to obey. They're called to be a treasured possession. Their God is the only God. And fourth, they are people called to bring the glad news of God to the nations of the earth. And when Moses comes down Mount Sinai, he tells the elders, this is God's will for this people. And they responded by saying, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. (laughs) Famous last words, they didn't. But that's also God's message for the church today. Our God is the only God. He has sent his son, and we, kingdom of priests, bring the gospel of Jesus to the whole world. We're not keeping it for ourselves. We're bringing it to the world.
0: Thanks for your message, John. You know, I hear a lot of people say that, you know, because of the new covenant, the Israelis are no longer the chosen people. Everybody is I think you're saying there is a special place for the nation of Israel.
1: I sure am, Ben. I, you know, this is clear to me in the Scripture. And Paul himself in Romans tells of the day when all Israel will be saved. So God still has promises that he makes to Israel. Yeah, I've also tried to make the point that there's a distinction between the Church being called God's chosen people. We are chosen unto salvation. Israel is chosen in a different way. There's always clearly that if the minority of Israel were saved. However, God chose Israel as a lesson book to the nations. That's what I'm trying to say.
0: Thanks, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, A Desert Experience. Right here on Back to the Bible Canada, the Bible teaching you can trust. Have you ever been too timid to share the good news of Jesus Christ? The reasons for our caution are varied. We don't want to face a negative response, or we don't know how to answer people's questions or rebuttals. Our fear can become so large it swallows our voice. We all need help in speaking our faith. Well, this month, Back to the Bible Canada offers a free book by Matt Smethurst called Before You Share Your Faith. It speaks to our motives and our fears. It addresses our concerns and offers practical help. So, to request your free copy, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Let it encourage you to share the good news of Jesus. And please, consider offering a financial gift to support the ministry this month.